Welcome to Journeys in Podcasting, learning the teaching community within and beyond. Our topics today are collaborative spaces and tools. We'll be reviewing the Steelcase equipment that we had a pilot with for a month and the tools that we put in. For this with uh, podcast, we'll start with a roundtable discussion with our in-house staff. Uh, and here in the studio, we were joined by Jessica Hertz, Lindsay Twipe, Aaron Garanger, Steve Oppen, Mr. Chris Davis, and Diego Lopez. Then at the end, we'll extend beyond with an interview with... Ivan Tiquet, who is the Steelcase Director, visiting from Mexico. So, welcome to our teacher podcast. This is Diego Lopez, Instructional Technology, and joining me here in studio is Chris Davis, and I am a Technology Project Coordinator, and also this is the concept child of Natalia Leon, who's not with us today, but she'll be participating in future podcasts. Here we go. So, this is our first um, screencast podcast, which we want to be a series And um, my name is Chris, and our topic is the Steelcase Pilot. We'll talk about Steelcase, Socratic Circles, scribing, and flipping. Just go around and introduce everybody in the room real fast. Hi, I'm Diego. I'm the uh, Instructional Technology Specialist, and we're glad to be here. I'm Lindsay Choate, and I'm a fourth grade teacher. I'm Jessica Hertz, and I'm also a fourth grade teacher. Oh, I'm Steve Aubin, and I teach third grade. And I'm Aaron Garriger, and I'm a math coach. Okay, so the idea is um, some of the people in the room were involved in a Steelcase pilot, so we're going to focus on this topic of collaborative tools, and as we're talking, we'll let this video kind of play. Um, so in the room, we had the node chairs designed by EDO and sold by Steelcase, and the idea is that you take furniture out of the room and they facilitate collaboration among the people in the room. So we had the chairs themselves, we had a mobile teaching station, we had two media scapes, and something called an EDO board. Uh, the chairs were quite helpful for some of my students who have a hard time sitting still um, and instead of wanting to get up and move around they could just kind of swivel back and forth a little bit and it kind of kept them on task and rock and rolling. But also just being able to use different type of group work. We went from being able to have big groups of four to five kids down to the pairs and so it was just easy for them to be able to not only exert a little bit of energy but also to quickly move into those positions um, and change it up so not having the same partners all the time as well. I liked it just because of the space underneath the chairs, like being able to put materials there in the beginning of the lesson or have them stow things underneath and that travels with them as they move with the chairs was really helpful and did save quite a bit of time. And our, you'll see that our, our students were just as choreographed as, as the video shows there. <laughs> um, yeah, I kind of like this idea, too, of, of not having a, um, a kind of center of the room where you could move around to any corner. So in our stop frame um, documentation, you can see that we kind of use different corners of the room for different moments. Um, so that at one moment we might be teaching up the front of the wall and then we might quickly switch to our corner of the room where the kids are projecting part of one of their screencasts as well. Mm -hmm. It was fun to have the different types, not just to have the furniture and the chairs, but to have the media scapes as well for the projection pieces. Um, and just being able to showcase the work these kids did on the technology in a variety of ways, whether it was through the TV or through a projector, The kids had a lot of fun being able to showcase it immediately. It wasn't just a, hey, you have to wait a couple days or that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. it, it was a quick way to reflect so and for differentiation. So we could see 
a student's work and we could um, project maybe like an exemplar work or um, something and then we could highlight and tell the kids what we liked um, and the kids that maybe didn't have an idea um, of what was going on, they could see that exemplar work right away um, or even as we were teaching the lesson we would have some up um, and some of the students working um, with us and so those other kids that were kind of a little bit behind could see an example um, as we were going. It was neat seeing how different teachers used it differently. I mean, ours were pretty formatted, like we came up with a system for the Socratic circles in the center and the different scribing stations around the outside. But I noticed in like in math, they, they did it differently. They used the whiteboards on the walls sometimes, or they made stations and rotated the kids through stations. Miss Carla has now joined us as well. Hi. Did you want to jump in there and say anything about the actual chairs and the tools in the room? Um, I really liked um, being able to use a variety of different tools um, in order to teach the math lesson. I think the kids were more interested. I think it hooked them, um, you know, and they felt like experts by the end of the, by the, end of the unit. Um, when we did the teaching today, they felt really good about themselves. Even kids who, who tend to struggle in math felt like, I'm, I'm, a, I, I'm very knowledgeable in this. And I think um, the use of the technology and the being able to move the chairs around and easily to form those groups really helped with that. So, cons of the chairs, I mean, I, I noticed like for the fourth grade body, they want to put their feet on the, you know, touch the floor, so they lean forward in the chair and then they tip forward. So we had at least like six witness tippings and no emergency room visits. So we were kind of, you know, crossing our fingers and hoping no one's going to come up with broken fingers after that. But like they do tip forward for the for the little ones and the mobility thing. I thought it was really cool for some things. Um, and then I realized that there is an advantage in 19th century schoolhouse of just keeping people filed in their stations. Yes, they, they definitely appreciate bumper chairs. That was a game that went unspoken, but definitely occurred throughout the, cl <laughs> the classroom and the space. Nothing broken. Not as much as I had expected. Yeah. I expected my kids to be, um, as soon as they sat down, I expected the first thought in their mind, bumper cars. Um, but they were pretty um, mellow. They, they listened, they did what they were supposed to, for the most part. Do you guys think that, it, that, that the tool actually did facilitate collaboration better? Like, do you think the kids were more apt to turn to their partners and work together, or? I don't know that I'm convinced about that, but I will say that it sped up the process. Because when you think about transition times and how horrible they can be to get kids regrouped quickly, it did speed it up. And to have everything right there, so their iPads right under their seat, their boards and their pens are right on their desks, their notebooks right there, like everything's right there, there's really no need to even get up. You just have to wheel your chair. So I think in, in that sense, it's a definite benefit and that everything's much quicker to get them sorted. I think the biggest concern that I had in here was just the physical space, that the room has to be pretty big mm -hmm. because it got uncomfortable. And especially if you're not in a chair, like trying to get around, like, you know, you want to get up to the TV or you want to get over to the projector and you've got 20 desks between you and the place you're trying to go and there's no pathway yes. because it's all filled up with bodies and chairs. I felt this sort of inertia as far as getting out of the chair and getting the kids mobile because Initially, I was like, oh, we want them up at the board, writing on the board, and then getting them out of the chair and moving over there. It actually, in some ways, was a deterrent to other kinds of mobility. Mm -hmm. Although I do like how it opened up our eyes 
and instantly realizing, well, now, you know, half circle, get the kids in discussion or presentation mode, or get them sharing with partners, or get them in groups of four. So like in that way, like you're saying, just facilitated that quick movement there. Whereas in a normal classroom, you have to really go through a 20 minute, you know, furniture moving process if you want to manipulate the room that way. Yeah, if you want the kids to sit at a desk and, and have, you know, the space, you've got to take time out of with, with the, you know, regular furniture, you have to take a lot of time to organize, or the kids will end up sitting on the floor or sitting in whatever corner they can find. Whereas with these, these chairs, I thought it was very beneficial that, you know, they could quickly move them and they still had a desk to write on and, um, you know, the, their space underneath. I would argue, though, if you do, I mean, I spend usually about three weeks at the beginning of the year and not teaching content, just teaching routines. I know, but it's, it's like, true. It, it pays off because you see my kids, they can do under a two minute transition. So I'm wondering if that's just, a, just maybe a basic management issue. But I would, I would agree with these would facilitate. I'd love to use these. Well, and then the noise that comes with that, too. Like, yeah. I mean, especially at our school where everything is metal or concrete. Like, there's a lot of noise. Like, and, and remember when I was up above you in the multi-purpose room, there were days where you're like, what the hell is going on? Like, what are you doing up here? Because all the desks in the chair, and the poor classroom underneath you, like, you just get to suffer as we move our desks. Yeah. However efficiently it may be. Yeah, I think, you know, critiquing, since we're critiquing the chairs, we're talking about the media scapes and things, too. Okay. Like, I mean, I definitely think that the room, if it was bigger, would have opened up ten times more possibilities as far as how we use the chairs. But even with this little room, I'm, I'm kind of amazed at what we're able to accomplish as far as like, the media The media scapes, I would not put the mobile chairs and fourth graders in front of the media scapes. To me, it's too many movable pieces. You've got a movable chair, a movable kind of desk in front, and then you've got this movable piece you've got to attach to your iPad. So I would put just a fixed desk in front of the media scapes. I do like the idea of connecting without having to use the network, but I felt like getting them grouped for in front of the media scape, getting the pieces out, getting them plugged in, was actually kind of a more complicated process than flipping up and connecting to the Apple TV. Yeah. But that's for sure, that pushed collaboration in the end more, I would say more the media scapes than the chairs. Uh, regardless of, you know, the chair design, a, it helped you get rid of all those rough design of square desks and heavy and having to move around with that and move your things around, whatever. Yeah, and the design is pretty neat and it gets ready, it gets the kids ready for learning and they are more willing to, and when they come, you could feel it, when they came into this space they were more willing to, because the space does change when you get rid of those old desks uh, from the you know 1900s and whatever. With, We've had that around for a couple of years. But the media escapes, just the fact that getting connected, a bunch of kids in there, and having the amazing possibility of switching between devices and everybody having the chance to show up their, their work, that really sped up the process. I think in a, <clears throat> in a regular homeroom classroom, if we had this for the uh, long span, the whole year, like Steve said, if we have that time to really get down those... Um, those routines with the media scapes and all that, I think it would have been more successful mm -hmm. and a lot more easier. I mean, with just our short amount of time, the kids really did a good job of using the, using the materials and using um, the tech, being respectful of the technology. I think they did a pretty good job with the short, the short amount of time that we did that. Well, let's, um, let's jump forward and see what, what were some of those activities we did push in. Um, 
So here was one, and um, I guess let's just take turns kind of critiquing these as far as introducing them. This was visual scribing, so the idea is they're using explain everything to describe what's going on in the discussion in the circle. So, for example, this kid, um, he really appropriated the use of the app and expressing like in the bottom left, here we have the, the darkness of this girl's life, and so he quickly scribbled out a darkness and then with the eraser, you know, superimposed uh, an image of the girl and her mother. So that was kind of cool, like we actually got a different way of expression that we might not get in a normal text way or a normal highlighting of text way and commenting way. Um, I felt like this was a pretty accurate reflection of what was going on in the circle. I would use this activity again for describing all types of things. It was just a quick finger sketch and swipe, a quick finger sketch and swipe. And um, this particular student has a little bit difficulty explaining himself and with the English language and so I love that he was able to express what was going on in his head in drawings and get it out that way and then he was really able to articulate after he did the visual he would look at it and he'd be able to explain what he meant um, in a lot more um, clearly than if he, you just asked him point blank. Yeah. So he got that time to brainstorm visually and then explain further. So it really reminds me of um, something that Steve's class that we designed for them where they um, visually made their storyboard and they, oh, map, they mapped out the crescendo or, or the drama building of their story all visually and then went and wrote about it afterwards to kind of like get their thoughts visually expressed and then you find that, that sort of gets them pinned to an idea and they're able to kind of stick with that and express it better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it, we're so used to being able, or asking the kids to use words and <clears throat> to be able to write it out like, with using words. And this is just a very different way of thinking. For those kids that really don't have a good time and not have an easy time being able to express the words, um, but being able to use the photos and then to be able to process that and then communicate that. I think it was just beneficial for that kind of intelligence. A suggestion I had is that after I worked with Chris in my class where um, we drew out what we were thinking in our small moments, um, then we would act together. And we're looking at adaptive mm -hmm. theories right now. And we're using the idea of making a movie in your mind, mm -hmm. which is also something you're looking at when you're um, doing reading workshop. Yeah. And so it's very exciting because we've got all those modalities now to help with the written work. Mm -hmm. okay, so let's jump forward. Um, this is just more <coughs> examples of the visual scribes. I like the top left one where the line is showing that she's protecting her from the bullies. Um, and then we go into... Um, Bioboard. So the Bioboard was an interesting app. Chris brought it in right before we started the first Socratic Circles. And um, it was interesting because you, all the kids had different jobs. You know, they had to track a couple of the people that were within the circle that was in the middle of the room. And then, so they wrote, they would describe what they were saying and the thoughts that they had and what they were expressing throughout the discussion. And then there were a couple, and then there was a couple kids that were drawing arrows of who was doing the most talking and who they were talking to. So the kids were able to immediately see what kind of traffic there was within the circle, who was the dominant speaker or who um, didn't have a chance to be able to share. We experienced in um, one of our first circles that a student came very prepared, she was very excited about the Socratic circle, but didn't say a word. And so the rest of the class, when we had the reflection, because we would reflect out after these circles, they would be like, well, Natalie, why didn't you say anything? And she was just like, well, and the rest of you all were talking so much, and she was timid to do it. So then for the next time, the kids were able to push her and recognize that, okay, this is a child that needs a little bit of extra help. So it was good for the social piece as well, you know, for mm -hmm. the kids to recognize how to have a conversation like we're doing right now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, another thing that I liked about this was um, 
in the Reader's Workshop, we've been working on theme. And so it's interesting to see their development with just their um, observations from the Bible. First, it was just like, so-and-so said this. It was very simple. Mm-hmm. And then as we were developing, what is theme? How do we identify theme? Um, their observations became more clear. And they would just, it was almost, um, their actual observations got shorter. Um, because they were really trying to look at those patterns and find the theme that the individuals were talking about. Yeah, and some of these activities, you know, they kind of appropriate the activity. Where we kind of like set out a general structure for it. And the kids kind of made of it mm-hmm. sort of what they wanted. In this case, it was really surprising how much they captured of the conversation. When you say to one kid, every time this kid talks, you need to take out some kind of note about what they're talking about. Then by the end of the conversation, we've got like four to five kids working on this app at the same time. We get this you know, elongated um, note-taking of, of what went on in the circle. This one, I, I would definitely, you know, as soon as you do something, you want to revisit and do it again and, and do it a different way. But this one actually has different pages. So maybe in the future, we would actually have, I don't know, each kid have their own page of notes, but some way to kind of have them come together better on how they, they present it. In. Well, I think this is pretty powerful just because you've got kids that are listening actively. And I think that's hard to teach and hard to practice. And I think when you give them something to do other than just take notes or write what's important, when you give them a specific task and a job and ask them to, to really actively listen to what's going on and synthesize that information, that's powerful. Well, and that's the beauty of Surprise Circles, is that it's a dynamic for the whole entire class. Um, and then those kids that are in the outer circle, they have to learn from what the inner circle is doing because they're going to be in that seat in a couple minutes or the next day. So. Um, hopefully it's like a learning process for them. And the reflection is probably the most important part of the circle. This is the app Explain Everything. And we used it in different ways. In this particular way, the kids are creating a photo documentary of what's happening inside of a Socratic circle. So they go around, take photos, and they come back quickly and they write, um, they kind of scribe out or write um, captions for what each photo is supposed to be about, not just what they're doing, but specific things they're saying. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Looks like some good text evidence. Okay, so I'm going to roll into our next app. Oops, I will somehow change that slide. Yes. Okay, and here, um, this was a station where they were uh, text scribes. So uh, one of our uh, teaching points in our readers workshop was using evidence, using text evidence to prove your claims. So in the Socratic circle, um, the students came prepared with their pipe boy, what we call it, put your finger on it, or text evidence. And um, off of that pipe boy, they would come up with questions or connections or what have you um, to keep the discussion going. Um, and these students, they had to keep track of those pipoids and then different themes or whatever was said from that pipoid. Yeah, I was kind of, when we thought about this one, like, I think we had so much scribing going on in the room and that we were moving pretty quickly through this stuff. And I was thinking, like, how would I do this differently? Maybe with more time or mm-hmm. if I replanned it. And I was thinking, like, maybe even getting some of the scribes to kind of come together and make a common scribe report where you have, like, the pyphoids from the text and the visual scribe and making the connections between the oh. things that they scribed. So in the reflection they would have like come like split up 
Yeah, or, or have the scribes be sort of an extension of the conversation where in that night everyone would revisit the scribe reports and have some way for them to continue the discussion on the Google Classroom or on, on another format. But I, I really like the activities of having the kids really attuned to what's going on in the circle. I thought that was pretty cool. And I, I was always thinking, like, where could we take this from here? And, like, how could we have that discussion bubble out from there? Mm -hmm. I think our time constraint was when you have a deadline, you have to just kind of keep things moving. But, like, if I was to do this again in a longer format or in a deeper format, like, where would we take it to go deeper? And this was a really good, again, differentiation. For those kids that had trouble finding text evidence, they got to see it, see students do it. And they were, um, you know, kind of a part of that. And I've seen them develop in their own reading um, with using pipeline text evidence um, independently now, even in our own classroom. So it's been good. It was a good um, kind of scaffolding for those kids. Or like I wonder if you could use these activities even during your read aloud to the kids. Like today, I want you four kids over here to do this particular scribing activity. I want you guys to visual scribe my read aloud and discussion with the class. Mm, cool. And that would be kind of a cool way for them to revisit these activities that they learned over those weeks and then they could like continue little pockets of this in other places too. So yeah, I'd like to use that. So moving on, um, Nearpod. I'm going to do all the talking. I'm just kidding. <laughs> my kids love Nearpod. Some of my parents came, would email me and they're like, my kid is always on the computer. And they said, well, why don't you come in and we'll, I'll show you what they're actually doing. Or why do you have the kids show you what they're doing? And once they saw it, they were like, wow. And some of my parents said, can you please, like, my kid is knowing so much more, um, more tools and more, and like so much more engaged than I ever was in school. Um, and so I think this kind of impressed um, the parents and impressed the kids. It made them a little bit excited to go home and do their homework. Hmm. Um, just because of the interactive so, on the computer. Yeah, I think only three of us in the room experimented with this. And we've done this before with a project last year. And I think it is a great flipping app. It's just a great way to design a lesson that can be taught part in the classroom and part at home or all at home. But for us, it served the purpose of embedding PDFs, uh, putting in polls, putting in quizzing, prompting activities that we could then potentially use during their Socratic circle. So in this particular one, we're looking at like what students answered, and then we would pull these up and throw them on the screen during their Socratic circle. One of us would hop in the circle and say, oh, but Christina said this last night, and then ask a question on top of that. So to kind of carry things back and forth from what they were working on at home into the classroom as well. And then it also had that flexibility of embedding videos. I mean, you can design a whole course with Nearpod if you really wanted to. Um, but it was kind of cool. And the accessibility factor, like you can access it from any device. So you could, any computer in the room, any iPhone in the room, as long as they have the Nearpod app, um, they can jump into the, into the lesson. Well, it's just so fun for the kids to be able to um, have different uh, ways of expressing what they had understood about the text that we had read or whatever the topic was that we were discussing and having you know, them draw a picture or be able to write out and reflect what their response was to a particular question. To have the poll is just a fun way to be able to look at the different um, responses in, in a question. And so it was just, I think, a good way for it to keep the kids engaged. And it was quick, so it wasn't something that you had to spend a lot of time on or you could spend longer 
depending on how, how you control the Nearpod. Um, and so I think it would be really cool as a transfer is for the kids to learn how to create them themselves. Mm -hmm. We were going to be able to, you know, work on that and be able to uh, understand because they, they got the, the student end of it, but then to see the teacher end, why can't kids do that as well? That would be that. really cool because yeah, they could sort of like design their own chapter study. Mm -hmm. Like here's the PDF. We want to prompt the rest of the class on this. They could read parts of the chapter and put mm -hmm. it in. That's really and it was a wonderful way to um, continue with the readers workshop. Mm -hmm. um, skills that we were working on, and we could just kind of uh, put them in there quickly, like the envisioning and asking questions and long way. The bank of answers you guys developed that as a class, or you or each, or you had ideas that you had, you came up with as teachers. Mm -hmm. how, how did you get the bank of answers? Well, yeah, we, example, we were yeah. moving pretty fast. So like okay. basically, one of us would design. Uh, we kind of had a Google document where we brainstorm by chapter and say, like, okay, what are the themes on this chapter? Okay. So we, we basically opened up a document, put a section for each chapter, and then we took notes. What are the main themes on each chapter? And then we started thinking, which themes do we want to build the whole thing? So some of it was pretty clear cut, like we were following themes from previous chapters. But sometimes it was like literally, we're going to throw in this image to go with this Nefertiti image. Okay. And, you know, sometimes we had kind of tangential themes primers for them for their discussion as well. Because I love Lindsay's idea. I love how you would give them the sentence starter and then give them probably, I mean, then the bank of answers they would have to develop in their in their um, book clubs. I think that's brilliant. Mm -hmm. I love that idea. Thank okay. you. Yeah. Well, and I think another thing that would be really cool for the kids is to be able to see what kind of connections they make. Because mm -hmm. what was cool is Chris would take something that would be like, this picture he found or something that he thought of and then throw it into a near pod. And then so to see like what, what are the connections the kids are making to what they're reading, you know, right. with the outside world. What yeah, funny, having those like sort of graphic, like, you know, we would make these connections to civil rights, for example. Mm -hmm. But they were like, well, they might not even know what, what are the images that evoke, you know, the themes of the civil rights. So we'd pull in some images of marches and that would come into discussion as well. Or uh, empowerment of women was another issue. Mm -hmm. And so we pulled up the you can do it poster from the factory. We would show that and we'd show an image of Nefertiti and then the question for the kids was what could these two images possibly have in common with each other? So they're like, oh, well, Nefertiti was a strong ruler. Right. Um, mm -hmm. you know, very powerful icon of well, ancient Egypt. Well, then they them to like, the history of what was going on at that time when the author wrote the book or like, what the the author was trying to expose them to during that oh, time. Oh, I love it. Yeah, no, author's so. purpose. I think that's always universal. So these are just like what the format looks like for an open-ended question. And here's one for a multiple choice question or a poll. And that brings us to video notes, which um, we'll go through really quickly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so this is uh, a YouTube video embedded into a Google app called Video Notes. And on the right column, kids take notes that are then time-coded. We only used it for um, really one activity, but I think the potential for it are pretty great. Like, literally kids could have been having discussions and questioning as they're going through the video. We were asking just to pick out the main kind of topics and facts of the video. Okay. So we pulled in some videos from Smart History. I um, love Embedded them there. And that's how the kids got into the that Book of the so Dead fantastic. and into Nefertiti, and it brought in a lot of the main ancient Egypt Themes as well. Mm -hmm. I wish we could have gone, um, we could have used this more. I think I just because of time. Um, but the students loved it. They were so engaged. They loved watching the video. And you know, a lot of the times, like they watched a video and then they tell you about the end of the video. Um, so this allowed them to really process um, during the video, pause, um, take snapshots. Um, I'd like to use this more 
And then, like, I would love to use teaching it. how to use video as real content. You know, we were so trained to like play the whole video and have it be a very passive experience. And this, we kind of train them to watch the whole video and then start chunking it. Like, watch 30 seconds, take some notes, ask some questions, watch, you know, so they only watch little segments of it and they can start really using it as a more meaningful piece no, of content. I've done taking notes off video. I think it's very important and report out to your partner. Mm-hmm. But I love the idea that, yeah, you're taking, like you said, specific notes at it, um, intervals. I love well, this. And I like the idea that the kids decide when to stop. That's Because yeah, a lot of times the teacher got in and we stopped the video and said, yeah. okay, now what's important? And the kids were like, what, what, something was important? Right. So, I mean, giving them the power to start and stop the video mm-hmm to reflect on their own, to write their own thinking. I think that's super powerful. Yeah, I mean, I want to say, like, this would be a great both classroom tool and tool for the kids. Like, you know, playing a video and then maybe stopping and prompting questions, and that's just as you go through and frame what's in the video. Right. And going back through it a second at a time, and you know you have these questions to be listening for, and you could go back and, like, put those in as well. Absolutely. It's like Google Docs, where multiple people can be working on it at the same time. Right. So it's got some great affordances, but then some of the constraints are it's kind of glitchy. It's, sometimes it's hard to connect. Usually once it's going, it's working fine. Um, it does have these great Evernote exports. So this is like you take a snapshot of the image here and the snapshot. You won't see it here, but you'll see kind of like where it's going to go. Then when you export it to Evernote, it comes out as a nice list of notes with the images in between. Is there a closed captioning option or something? I'm thinking for our ELL learners, I'd like to have... Well, I think what you have here for just like in, well, no, in the YouTube here... With, no, but I do stuff with BrainPop all the time. And the one thing I love about it yeah. is that it's the got... Text. The text. Is the text so that you can stop and say, oh, because a lot of the times it's... Yeah, that that was a thing on the YouTube video. I think YouTube right, has an automatic thing. It doesn't oh, work. Yeah, yeah no, it's pretty good. But it's, right. it's pretty funny. You can actually download that, correct it, and upload it. So yeah. Anyway, let's move on. Another, <laughs> Sorry. Another note on the video notes is that this would be really good, especially when it came to like our math videos, where the kids would be able to reflect on what they had their own work. Like the Khan so, Academy, you can yeah. use the Khan Academy videos. I love it. Yeah, so oh, that's could, fantastic. So they would be able to, or just anything. Like we were talking about doing this for our poetry unit. To, to show what kind of expression they use, you know, what they like, what they dislike, so they can be able to critique each other themselves and on their own notes because we're using so much of the technology already. Yeah. Um, it would just be good for them to be able to apply That's that to their cool. own learning. So to do that, I think you'd have to, because I know a lot of us are just uploading to Drive, you'd have to upload straight to YouTube and then link, and link in from there. That, that's a really cool idea. Shall we go? Okay. So these are um, screencasts. So we're, ta- we're trying to come up with different ways to get the kids engaged into their reading. And so we would do two things with them. One, we would prep the kids before their Socratic circles. And um, Jess and Lindsay and I would just literally sit around an iPad and have a discussion about the text. And sometimes we'd have some prompt post-its that we'd photographed and thrown in there too. And so this was just our modeling uh, a Socratic dialogue for the kids. What does it sound like when you come up with a pie foil and a piece of text? and you come up with a question and then have a quick discussion about it. Um, and then we also used Explain Everything for reading the chapters and flipping the classroom as well. And then the second one, they want to say anything? I'm not going to kind of fly through these. I mean, just the benefit of having the flipped classroom, and the kids really appreciate hearing us. You know, it's yeah. one thing to be able to hear a stranger. It's another to be like, oh, 
I recognize Mr. Chris, or I recognize Miss Justin. You know, it was just, it was good for them because they're used to hearing us anyways, and so they're comfortable with it. Makes yeah. the, the technology slightly more comfortable. Mm-hmm. And teachers learn. I think you always, yeah, you always have yourself teachers learn. We know we're talking about other potentials for screencasting too. We were just showing that the new iOS, up, uh, iOS, the OS X up, updates for Yosemite has a really nice kind of quick time camera. It's really easy to screencast. So we'll, we'll show that in third grade next week. I would week. love to. Like yeah, to do something like this, you don't necessarily have to do it on Explain Everything. There's other ways you could come up with some simple ways to flip your classroom to create little mini lessons or, or little videos too. So the second video was, um, what is our second video there? Oh, this is, the kids would come up. This is a, a photograph of the kids' text. So they would annotate their text before they went into the Socratic circles. And this is what they would guide their discussion with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is an excellent, excellent example of um, the prep for Socratic circles. Here she has her pie boy, her text evidence, um, color coded <laughs> for um, questions. Um, she has some character traits. Um, the parts where she liked a character and the parts where she did not like the character. And then next to it, she has in pencil next to the highlighted um, text. She has notes, um, interesting, or I know she had some questions in there. Um, so she really came prepared. She really dove into this text. Um, and so we use this as an example um, for students um, for the next Socratic Circles. Yeah, and I would say this is one of those areas, like I, th- I thought it was cool that we did it, but this was something I would love to go deeper with. Like I think photographing any kid's work and then making a screencast of what you liked about that work and then showing that in class the next day. Oh really empowers the kids' sense of importance in, in their work and also like keeps a library of exemplary work out there anyway. So mm-hmm. And because you need, this is the thing, you can give a rubric, but you need the exemplars. And I found this in our teacher, after teaching for six years, I had a full bank of every um, every type of artwork we were looking at across four grade levels. And I, I wish we had that in, in reading and writing here. And I think this would be a good bank. Mm-hmm. And then we, we haven't done screencasting of videos, but you can actually import videos into Explain Everything and then annotate those as well. I haven't seen anyone do it yet, but I, I know it's possible. Yeah, so you could like literally download a video, one of your kids' math videos, and you could and create a screencast it. of their math video, stopping and starting the video, giving critiques of it. That would no, 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 no. so be something for us to... That would be really on. cool for the, for the teaching part. Okay, so our last segment, and this is the first time we've done this format of any kind of screen podcast, but the idea was based on the Slate podcast where they get to the end, they all do a go around and they do kind of recommendations. <laughs> and so I'm going to do a plug for Tom Kelly, who is the former CEO of Idio, the creator of the No Chairs. They're the ones who created oh. the No Chairs. Oh. Thanks, Tom Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> Keep up the good work. <laughs> so, uh, it comes out of a philosophy of problem solving called design thinking. And I think this mainly comes out of Silicon Valley and it's centered around the D school. He's actually um, the head of the D school now, I think, um, at Stanford as well. So I found this article in the Steelcase literature in their 360 magazine. Not that I want to, you know, kiss too much ass on this, but uh, <laughs> but I find him really fascinating. And I read his book, The Art of Innovation. He has another one on creative thinking. And I put a couple of quotes out here. The the interview has got a ton of stuff that are really useful for teachers, for tech innovation, for any kind of collaborative setting. He's just sort of a master at getting different kinds of heads in the room, getting them to synthesize their thoughts and getting them in, into action, basically. Um, so the one on the right here says, how do you get people comfortable to engage in close collaboration? 
trust relationships are a big part of, an, of the equation. You have to build a level of trust to be able to communicate effectively. Think about the difference between somebody that you talk to teleconferencing, but you don't have a personal relationship with. It's a business meeting and you're on guard, and you don't show anything that could be considered clever or controversial, right? Because you have to meet face to face. So part of that, I thought, what made our project so successful was we met a lot. Mm -hmm. And like that, to me, is the way you have to do any kind of collaboration project learning, especially when it's a little bit off of the normal track, is just constant check-ins. Like, how did that go today? What are we doing tomorrow? How can you know, what's our plan? Modifying plans, coming up with different ideas. Mm -hmm. I gotta say, when you guys came to me initially, what you had planned out was so vast and big. I, I like, scared the producers out of me. But I, I think we did a good job of sort of having that one core piece we worked on, mm -hmm. and then branching out from there. Yeah. Well I was a little bit, I mean, the three of our personalities and the way that we um, brainstorm is very, oh, we could do this. What about this? What about this? And so it was funny with some of our meetings, it was like, wait, did anything get done? Besides, ideas and excitement, it was like, you know, there's a part in the book where the two girls, that we were studying, there were two girls look at each other and it was like an electric shock because they were so excited. And it was like, that was our meetings. Um, and it was awesome. Um, but we did come face to face, and if, um, I think if any of us were a little bit more, needed things to be a little planned out more, or more rigid, I think we would have driven each other crazy. Um, but I think keeping it um, focused on the kids and having those constant check-ins, constant face to face check-ins. More than daily. <laughs> it, was, it was a very design thinking experience. Lots of prototyping, lots of error making, and lots of doing it. Well, a lot. It was very <laughs> organic. And we also used where the kids would take it. Um, and part of that was because we didn't have a lot of time um, to plan before. Um, but then also it made it any more authentic for the kids and um, uh, based on their interests and where, where we wanted to, where we saw it going. So mm. it was very flexible. Well, the kids were really, it was good for them to recognize that communication is so essential when having projects. And, you know, being able to communicate via, in a variety of ways. We did IM, email, Google Docs, website, I mean, you name it. We had every way of communicating, which was good. And it was good for the kids to see, too. Like, they were like, oh, I just heard a ping. Is that from uh, Mr. Chris and Ms. Jeff? Well, and the, the other quote that I'm, I'm not going to read through, but it's basically talking about how when you have a deadline, how that forces you to get it done, like, uh -huh. you know, and I think that is one of the healthy things about the spotlight experience is that, like, it has to be done by this date, and so everything has to be ready for that. So quickly going on, because I know we're, I can hear from outside that our times work. And uh, when asked what um, Chris came to me and said, what do you want to contribute and what, what wish do you yeah. have for Socratic Circles, okay, I'm going... Anchor chart. I thank you. That's one of my goals this year, but I want to make a plug for, um, a, you know, old school... <laughs> Uh, methods because one of the things I mean, you see a couple of lessons here and I Chris and I worked together over, I mean we've worked together for a couple of years and when I've always been enthralled when he's done Socratic circles with my kids and so what I want to show here is that you can use the idea of modeling using post-its modeling then modeling using you can see with the the word balloons you can model partner talk that transfers into your book clubs which then you can push into Socratic circles because I've got one group right now where I will just go and I'll say, well, are you sure? Are you sure this character is 
do you agree with all of her actions? And boom, the kids start fighting, and, and like, like you say, going back to the text and supporting their evidence. Now, they will carry on for a whole class, which I think is good, but we need to, I, I need to sometimes advance it. But this is, yeah, this is several, essentially uh, a couple of weeks of work looking at, um, you know, writing down and observations we have about the text. And I, I loved your idea of uh, put your finger on it. So essentially we're doing that with the post-it. And then taking that and having discussions, I'll model during the read-aloud, and then similarly the kids will model during their, their partner talk. And then automatically you take that, and with these anchor charts, they can go into the book clubs. And then as the teacher come in, actually I have one girl who decided one day, she said she went into her book club and she said, you know what? I don't think the character on Siegel is very responsible. And everyone just, oh, they had a royal uproar. But I thought, how exciting. Awesome. They're 8, 9, and 10, and they're having arguments about characters. And, and I, I, I love it. I love and it keeps them excited about the book. And oh, they love, and they, they can't wait to get to the book club because they know it's going to be, they're going to argue about things. So, I mean, you do have to push that along. But it's a very, considering where, um, like, when Chris and I done this with Alexander, the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day, and I had to rely on him to push the kids in their thinking. And now, I'm, I'm, it just happens in my classroom naturally because hmm. of these steps. I love it. I think it's and so exciting. And what are the steps? Okay, so first, if you look at, I've modeled, and you can see all these, the post-its where it says readers write about uh -huh. their reading to push their thinking, and you start with simple things like you guys were saying, with I like, I notice, I wonder, and then you get into the things about the character, about the setting, because these are, I'm sure these are uh, mini lessons you guys do as, uh -huh. as well, and then, oh, I identify with the character, Ooh. because you want to overstep that awful, you know that awful connection, I connect to and they connect to everything, but yes. then if they can identify with the character because of something in their own life or exactly. another text, beautiful. And then, when the students finish, one student will talk about his or her book, and then these are my, um, you can see the over here with the word balloons, mm -hmm. readers push their partner's thinking by asking. Mm -hmm. And so, you can see the, the more, the simpler ones are on the, the bigger, uh, um, the bigger anchor chart. Can you show me in your book? Can you give me an example? Mm -hmm. Can you say more about, why do you think that? And they have to support their thinking. And then, afterwards, um, over here on the whiteboard, these are the the bigger questions I felt. Mm -hmm. Okay, and you can see what did the character do? Do you agree? Um, those are the kinds of things that get the kids um, fighting about characters and, in, and providing proof in, in the text. And see, this is such a good skill for the kids to learn because they won't only be able to do this in discussion in in general in life, but also oh, yeah. writing papers. Yeah, you know, and, yeah, and we're getting into nonfiction right now, so I can't wait for that. And I mean, you can see the word balloon. Of course, the word balloon motif is easy because you actually put that up as you're doing your read aloud. You hold it up to your mouth and say, "Oh, you're adorable." No, but you have to. And this is similarly, but you have. I have. That's why I have the giant posters as well. So oh, I'm going to make a note about this character and so I mean you have to be I over the third grade so I yeah. overemphasize it but it's it's worked really wonderfully I have a question with before they go into the actual Socratic circle do you have what kind of prep do you have them do besides the post-it do you have them like choose one post-it and do a write-long or what kind of thing we usually have three post-its for a write-long but what I find okay. more more valuable for the, the Socratic circle is to have them pair share and of course, I'm always walking around and reporting yeah. back to class what I'm hearing. And then similarly, um, when they're in, when I start the book club, I have to go basically remind them of all of these things. And these are a couple of mini lessons I'll say. Oh, remember what we talked about as partners, now we can talk about that as a group. Oh, but how are we going to do that so everyone is listened to? And then um, also, oh, how are we going to record what we're talking about mm -hmm. in our book clubs? Mm -hmm. And then after that, you can always, once that gets going, then you can jump in and say, all right, oh, I've, I've, I've got a problem here. I don't think I like this character. And, you know, that's, that starts so, yeah, I think what I propose is that um, we do our next session specifically on getting student inquiry and Socratic book clubs going. I would, and, and we have other. Yeah, we have other I feel like we, the there's still a lot out there we haven't really 
discussed, and um, I think there's a ton there, and I know there's other people that are really interested in that particular topic. So if you guys are willing to come back, well, I, I, think, I think our um, the population that we have here, especially, well, I don't know, I haven't been in many other classes, but my class is so talkative that I was sick of telling them, stop talking, stop talking, let's be quiet, let's, you know, it's like, okay, we need to give them the tools to talk in a focused manner on curriculum, to challenge themselves, and for it to be meaningful mm-hmm. and respectful. Yeah. <laughs> so if we can share that. And this is great. And sometimes the but minute it ends. Have some, yeah, have a point at today when you're with your partner, what are you going to be talking about? Mm-hmm. And then at one point we had a, um, a dilemma because we had a visiting teacher who was working with my, one of my kids. He said, oh, we were talking about something that wasn't on the anchor chat. I said, great. That's what readers do. <laughs> so it was really exciting. But you have the, like you have, no, I say hi High accountability in the beginning, and then and then it just magically mm-hmm. blossoms into this wonderful discussion and argument. It's very exciting. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, just like you guys do. I love it. Love okay, it. so um, I'm gonna cut this off here. We're seeing it's 1:50. Although I know that we could go on for hours, oh, um, and we'll plan our next session, and we're just gonna tack these themes as the core theme next time. I think Socratic circles. We'll, we'll build up our next one for that. Mm-hmm. So. Thank you very much. Right levels. And okay, hopefully this is working. Okay, so this is a follow-up to um, a Steelcase pilot um, for our podcast. And I'm just going to go around if everyone would say their name and kind of what they do that will help orient the listeners. I'm Chris, and I'm a project coordinator at CNG. And I'm Diego. I'm Integrational Instructional Technology Specialist, and here with us we have... Beautiful people from Steelcase. I'm going to have them introduce themselves really fast. Okay, I'm Ivan. I'm a regional education leader for Steelcase. I'm helping uh, Latin America to improve the learning experience. <clears throat> I'm Maria Fernanda, and I come from Steelcase. I'm a strategic, a strategic account manager for Central America and Colombia. I'm Paula Herrera. I am the Sales manager from ESCO in Colombia, in Bogotá. And I am Andrea, I work for ESCO. I work with consultant and marketing. Okay, so um, after we used Steelcase equipment and um, we watched all of these videos to kind of get ideas of you know how groupings are made, and we kind of had a few questions for you. Like one would be, could you just talk a little bit about what is the design thinking process? Because we know these chairs come from IDEO design and they have a very particular way of approaching designing of products. Can you sort of tell us a little bit about that process? Uh, yeah, I can share with you some of the insights. Uh, I don't know if I have a, I have to do this with a short uh, time, so it's yeah. too much, but. Uh, Basically, the company uh, developed this uh, solution to really uh, try to solve the problem of engaged engage, uh, students in the classroom. What we have discovered around the world is that there is a problem uh, engagement with the, with the student because of the use of new information technologies and the way the kids are learning right now. There has been a lot of changes in the learning process. There is a disconnection right now caused uh, with technology and the kids between the thinking and the do process. The cognitive, the cognitive uh, link 
between do and think has been lost in, in, in the part of the learning process. So the notion was designed to try to solve some of these issues that we observe in the education market. That's one of the aspects. It's not only the share. The share is part of the equation. Uh, it's more focused on the physical space. So no share is part of the equation. The other part of the equation is the space and how you use vertical spaces with uh, whiteboards. So that's why we can uh, establish that relationship between thinking and doing. So we can recover the link, I mean the connective, the cognitive, the cognitive link between thinking and doing. Okay. Uh, the share was designed also to allow students to. There are there are four principles, design uh, principles on the no share. The first one is allow them to move. So you have the swivel. That's uh, different. That having a share with just with, with casters is going to be more difficult trying to move the whole share. The swivel movement allows the student to really rotate 360 degrees and follow easily the, the t-shirt. The point of the, on this uh, design principle is that uh, take away the one direction uh, concept on the traditional classroom. You have the whiteboard on the front of the classroom and there you have uh, rows of shares. So that direction uh, defines the rhythm of the class, right? The way the teacher transfers the knowledge is by touching. And the, the students get that knowledge in a very passive way. There is no active learning. So in order to promote active learning, the student should be able to move. This means that the teacher can, I mean, they should also change the way they are delivering uh, the knowledge, meaning teaching, right? So the second uh, design principle is that the student can have a space to storage their, their uh, stuff. And uh, once the teacher decides to transition from a lecture mode to a more collaborative uh, uh, learning style, they can move with the, with the stuff. Uh, not having, uh, I mean, with conventional furniture, uh, this is impossible. I mean, all the stuff it remains on the on the floor, so it's very difficult for the teacher to uh, try to interact with their students. Uh, it's like uh, jumping uh, across the classroom with all the stuff on the floor. Mm. The third principle was to design a shirt that can cover a wide range of sizes. So, and basically because uh, our company is, um, has been involved in the developing uh, working spaces for adult, adult people, uh, was easy for us to cover uh, uh, medium and higher education. So really the show, I mean this solution is, is focused on these on this, uh, grades, not uh, elementary because of the size of the students. Anyway, you have different sizes around the world. I mean, people from a Far East are smaller, and women, women are smaller. So if you look at the chair, the base, uh, which is a tripod, has a, a 
niche that is above the floor, mm-hmm. that alone was the science of the, the woman, for instance, can place their feet there. And probably you, you can notice on the toddlers that they can reach the floor, but they can maybe reach the edge of the tripod base of the shirt. So there, that, that was the, the, the one of the reasons of the, the, the design of the tripod. Um, the shell was designed also to, if you look at the, at the, at the shell that creates the shell, uh, it's uh, like more open on, on the end, so it's easy for the people to get in and also get out. And covers is what, I mean, was designed to meet uh, people up to 300 pounds. Wow. Okay. So, um, when we played around with some of these same concepts you're talking about, and these are just, this is a stop frame video that we made about our, our experiences. And so we tried to design around those same ideas where you have kind of different corners of the room. You can't see the projections here, but we have one projection here, another one here, and then we have the two mediascapes on this side. And so we used like an inner circle discussion called a Socratic circle. And then the groups on the outside were doing documentation of what's going on on the, on the inside. So this group is documenting on one project here, and they each had kind of different kinds of, of things. Meanwhile, we would use this screen for teachers to pull in material that they had done online the night before that was getting them ready for the discussion. So we're trying to like build this concept of at any point, any point of the room could become the center of focus mm-hmm. of the room. Mm-hmm. And some of the things you're talking about, like one of the things that I immediately just loved about the chair was um, the swivel. That, you know, this kid starts talking and the entire room can swivel and look at that kid. I didn't realize how powerful that would be until we actually had the tool. And then I I really like this idea of changing the tools, changing the behavior, where it forced us having these new tools in the room to really focus on how can we get the kids to collaborate in some more dynamic ways. So definitely a believer in that. As I said before, for the fourth graders, um, we would love to experiment with the smaller chairs, but but this is pretty eye-opening. So you can see as we kind of played around with the with the concept, what some of the movements look like, and then how any class could come in and be set up within 30 seconds to a minute, we can have the room set up and ready to go. So those are some of the things. We definitely wanted more space. Um, One thing we felt that in this cramped cramped space in this particular classroom, um, we couldn't take full advantage of some of the dynamics of the groupings of the chairs just because to get this guy over here and this mm-hmm. guy over here, mm-hmm. there'd be a lot of kind of congestion here. But maybe even like a third more space or a double the space, we could have played around a lot more with the kids getting up out of the chairs and using the white wall space here and stuff too. Mm-hmm. But that was um, pretty eye-opening. Um, my question would be more like when you do change these tools, what do you recommend as far as teacher training and, and student training? Because uh, we, we kind of made up our own training for the students and had like a session for them just to kind of practice different formations and getting used to the chair so they knew not to just come in and play roller carts with them. Um, would, how do you all address that part of, the, like, yeah. of getting people used to the new tool? Yeah, you know, uh, in a matter of fact, the, the bottleneck is not a student. But we designed this, I mean, considering the new generations and how they learn, and how they, how they look at the world, how they, they conceptualize the world in a very different way. 
they are uh, digital na natives. This is a concept that I mean, someone uh, came on to the table with this uh, approach, defining this new generation as uh, digital natives, and I am an immigrant, a digital immigrant, because I have to adapt new technologies, but they born with it, with it, which is different. So really the bottleneck is with the, with the faculty, not with the students. And in some way, uh, the, the share was designed to be very intuitive. So really the students, they don't struggle in the understanding how to use the share. It's more related to uh, change the way the teachers deliver uh, the knowledge and, and, and the teaching, you know, the teaching process. So the way we are doing right now in different uh, universities is we have developed workshops to train teachers in uh, better use of the space and the tools. And that's why we have a specialist in Learn Rapids, Michigan, that uh, she is a, a specialized in pedagogy. So the, the, here, the, what, what she really do is link the different didactic uh, strategies to, into the space with the new tools, with the shares, with the vertical spaces, with the whiteboards. So now you have, uh, basically in, in higher education, you have project-based learning. You have a, a problem-solving-based uh, learning, case-based uh, based learning. So the idea here is that uh, she really uh, knows how to link the use of the space and the tools with those strategies. So the point here is that uh, kids, they're gonna get it right away. The other thing that we uh, also do with schools is to design a protocol on the use of the space. Because, uh, and our suggestion is that it's, it's better for you to train first the teachers, so they can, be, uh, they can uh, get the familiar on the use and uh, understand very clear how, how it works, and then design the protocol of the use of that space. So on the first uh, class with the students, the first thing they, can, they, they, they should do with the students is to review the protocol, explain to them, because the classroom, uh, what we observe on, on the education market is that uh, most of the time, the students don't feel that the classroom is, that they own the classroom. They just use the space, but they are not the owners. So they feel free to, I mean, the, uh, throw things and produce trash and whatever and make a mess. The, the bell uh, uh, rings and they just go out of the classroom and move, move on to the next one. No, so, at the same time that we were doing our um, literacy project, I don't know, I'm sure I have the images here, but this might be one of them. There was also a math project going on. And at the beginning, the two teachers, um, you know, I, I was kind of disappointed that the use of the space didn't seem all that dynamic. It was a lot of this kind of general circle. But then they, they quickly revamped their plans to really plan with more collaborative-based teaching, um, or collaborative-based learning, I should say. And then they, the next day they had like four stations and the kids got to choose their math concept and they 
you know, it became this very student-oriented room. This made me think of like, you know, um, Vygotsky and his, his study of language and tool um, and intellectual development, how you change the tool and it changes the way people interact and they talk. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the, the summaries of, of their study was that the kids adopted and appropriated the tools to their own uses. Mm -hmm. um, and they also were much more adept at picking up the vocabulary of the concepts they were talking about because of all of these collaborative elements that they were putting in. Mm -hmm. Very, very interesting. And in um, the sense that he says, well, the kids are going to get it right away and they'll, they'll get used to the tools. And in most of the cases, they will take ownership of the room itself absolutely. and what, what tools they have to their absolutely. disposal. I mean, the, the space where I also offer is permission to take that ownership because it, there is no direction. I mean, any wall can be the front or the rear part of the, of the classroom. Right. Uh, it means a change in the way the teacher delivered the class because uh, in some cases he can uh, encourage the students to work together. Mm -hmm. um, Monterey Tech, for instance, when we uh, installed a pilot there, was on, uh, on math sciences, mm -hmm. mathematics and, and science. So what one, one of the teachers uh, did was to spread the most advanced uh, students on the different subjects and uh, force them to gather with the, with the lower performance students. So in many cases, they learn from, 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 the, from their peers, mm. not from the teacher. So that, in fact, is also related to what you said a minute ago about we, we still have a lot of traditional classrooms. Oh, yes. And we still have that in many places that's uh, old, you know, old-fashioned approach of that vertical teaching system where the teacher has the power, it really is a power relationship thing. Uh, the teacher has the power, it's one that delivers the knowledge and whatever, and the classroom used to be, you know, designed and organized according to that same system oh, yes. where the Absolutely. teacher was always at front and there was Absolutely. always the whiteboard at front, but now Absolutely. we just empower the students to do stuff. And then you're right, the, the kids will get it, but then it's up to the teachers to really see how it changes their teaching practice. Yes. I mean, the teacher here becomes more than the, become the, the absolute uh, holder of the truth and the knowledge. He becomes more a facilitator that can uh, uh, guide students on the resources, the content. And uh, they, I mean, doesn't mean that uh, he's not responsible for the group. But it's more like a, a, a guide, mm -hmm. a director for the learning process. It, it just screams design thinking to me, <laughs> like the, the whole experience. And, and one of the things, I've gone through a few design thinking workshops, and this is democratization of the brainstorm, of getting everybody's ideas out and not being any bad idea. Um, this is all over the place in educational theory. John Dewey writes in The Child in the Curriculum about um, you've got the curriculum, but you've also got all of the child's experiences. So um, you can't ignore one or the other. That you have to use the child's experiences and make those connections into the curriculum. Um, I'm looking here at the cards that are in the. These are the mindsets that the D school in at Stanford lays out, and I'm noticing how many of these things that you're talking about are embedded in some of their their mindsets that are followed up with methods as well. But this one in particular, the radical collaboration, mm -hmm. this this need to 
get people's ideas crossing and get as many different uh, viewpoints in there as possible. The one uh, focusing on human values, this idea of using the child's experiences and letting them feel empowered in the classroom, the democratization of the actual space itself. Yeah. Very, very cool. <laughs> um, I, I, I'm, really, I'm really surprised that you go so deep on the, these uh, concepts and that you are conducting uh, research using our, our uh, products. I, I'm really well, we've been playing really around surprised. with project model. Yeah, I mean, kind of, we borrow from all over the place. So we look at Buck Institute, we look at challenge-based learning, we look at design thinking and try to pull from these mindsets whatever is appropriate for that particular project. It's very interesting. Um, really. And so getting to use the actual tools that go with these mindsets to us is just an exciting experience. Um, you know, our school is um, old-fashioned in some of its architectural formats, but we're also experimenting with using these spaces in, in dynamic ways. Um, later we'll go look at the global classroom that's almost in, completed, and the node chairs will also be up there, but the, the whole design of that room is based on these ideas of just creating a complete collaborative space where every kid's digital work can be thrown up on the screen at any moment. Um, some of the same things we played around with in, in this room during this project. Well, thank you. Glowing, man. Very much. <laughs> you should work with us. But you know, the thing is, we really wanted to do some research in that because, I mean, it seems to me like you guys have been one of the first that's taken this seriously. Like, okay, we know, we know, everybody knows, and we've known that for ages. The thing is, nobody has really tried to do it. Like, we know we need to change the space and change the teaching practices and adapt to new technologies and whatever. But it seems like what you guys are doing is really giving some results, you know, and then. In that order, we needed to do some research and actually support that and see what yes. new practices and yes. see where that knowledge and where that takes us as teachers but also the students and what they can produce with this. I mean, if not, then what everybody else is going to say is just, you know what, you just got some cool furniture and that's it. But we really want to prove that this takes education somewhere. Let me ask you something. I don't know if you are... I, I travel a lot to Grand Rapids where we are based. Uh, global headquarters and uh, all the research uh, department for the, uh, our division is in Grand Rapids. I travel up and there, I have a relationship with the upper management. I know if you are willing to share with us all this uh, research, will be interesting. Yeah, no, I don't think we have, I mean, that would be an amazing connection for us. We would love to have a dialogue. Um, you know, if they can help us, I certainly don't mind sharing. Material. We would have to, um, we're just finishing our consent form, um, you know, just using children images and things like that online. So um, we're finalizing that process really right now. So as soon as we have that cleared up and what we can share and what we can share, oh, yes, we're absolutely. more than happy to get input from you all for sure. Um, and if there are any more pedagogical researchers you can connect us with, we'd be absolutely. really interested in talking about Absolutely. Them. We will be happy to, to have that connection with you guys because. Uh, I'm really uh, surprised, amazingly surprised about uh, what you are doing. Oh, cool. Blow my mind, really. Oh. And uh, I think it will be great to have that connection because, really, I'm not the pedagogy expert. expert. Mm -hmm. I'm more, uh, I'm more uh, linked to the 
to deliver the solutions and the products to the market. Mm. Once we engage. What's impressive to me is that even down to your salesman and to your, you know, everybody seems to know the philosophy behind the product. Ah, yes. um, and I think that's, that's really eye-opening for us because we're more used to getting people coming, selling things that maybe they don't understand the pedagogical, you know, user side of it. And this, like going back to that empathy for the user idea. Um, that seems embedded in all of your literature. Oh, yes. We've read through Absolutely. a lot of your 360 um, publications, and there's a lot of stuff, particularly for schools in there. There was one on flipped classroom that we found yeah. very interesting. Yeah. Um, so Blended learning is also becoming very, yeah. very uh, demanded, in, in, especially in the, in the States, in the United States. Yeah. And the, the MOOCs is also causing that. Well, yeah, for example, I work with a group of Spanish teachers who came in very low tech. But because there's not that much content in Spanish for the things they're teaching, they use a lot of, they've, they've been using digital content, they've been blending for years. Mm -hmm. um, but getting them to curate and use Google Classroom to collect student responses is a pretty eye-opening, I mean, they take to the pedagogical side to it immediately. So if you look at, on the wall there, there's a TPAC model, if you look at um, technology, pedagogy, mm -hmm. and content, mm -hmm. they already have the pedagogical content parts, so when we put in the leverage of technology, it's really interesting what they come up with. The, the older, more educated, pedagogically based teachers are often some of the best ones to get into the leverage of technology as well. Well, good, great. Next time you're in town, stop sure, by. Sure. <laughs> uh, stop, there is uh, more to come. We are we are working right now in new new solutions, uh -huh. new developments. A very, I'm, I'm pretty sure that uh, some of these new developments will become a game changer mm. as the nature is uh, has been for many I mean for many schools. Mm. In Mexico nature is, is just booming. Uh, the, the largest private university in Mexico, which is uh Tecnológico de Monterrey, mm -hmm. they have uh, hundred and ten students nationwide, thirty one campuses, they just uh, migrate all their their classrooms to these uh, our solutions. Hmm. Well, we got started thinking on this because of a, a trip to North Carolina, and in Raleigh they have some uh, this library called the Hunt Library, and we were just mesmerized by this entire library and the whole design of the library is built on space, collaboration, different forms of learning. You see a lot of kids um, reading and they'll stand up for a while and write on a whiteboard. Um, so. You know, I, I went there for like three days and just kind of observed how people behaved in these spaces. And I don't know if they've gone through training or they've just been there for a while, but it, it was pretty interesting seeing how differently they interacted just by the, the changing of the tools. Have you found some insights on the research you have uh, done with this? Uh... Well, some of them were, I guess, things that we suspected, but we hadn't ever had the experience. So one was the ease of getting kids to move about the room, get it, you know, the, just the rearrangement of the room and how dynamic that is for kids. Mm -hmm. um, some of the just like watching the kids, like kids are, they tick sometimes, they rock. They, and we spend so much time getting them to just sit still in a chair. So it was kind of nice to see them have this option to just turn back and forth. Or when someone does talk, to swivel and everyone can just with ease yeah. look in that direction. Um, having the tool that facilitates group work you know, you need kids to pair up or get in groups of four. That was really dynamic. And then I really enjoyed the 360 degree teaching. 
having that mobile teaching station yeah. and getting to move from corner to corner of the room, talk off of this projection and move over here and talk over here. Just having that movement was really dynamic and we don't realize how tethered and locked into our teaching styles we are just because of the actual physical furniture in the room. So, yeah, we definitely sort of had our eyes open to those things. Um, some of this we kind of read about and suspected a lot of the 360 literature um, had kind of prepped us for that as well. And then even going back to some of the early, you know, theorists, if you look at activity theory, going back to Leontev and then going back to Vygotsky, these were concepts that they were already playing around with. Um, the difference between, you know, changing a tool and how kids will interact differently and how they'll speak differently with that tool. Um, also looking at kind of different kinds of knowledge and different kinds of thought, how Montessori would give kids uh, uh, 3D models of geometrical objects. So they'd have all of this tacit knowledge about the object itself, but they wouldn't have the refined thinking or the vocabulary for it. So that looked at, when we looked at our math project that we did, how the kids refine their thinking just by being able to approach it in a different way, in a much more collaborative way, presenting, getting feedback. That's something we didn't talk about, but that, that prototype loop of getting kids to produce something, immediately getting feedback, and then going and producing it again. Um, these are project elements that I felt like were just alive and well every day when we were using that. The cool thing about that too is, regardless of what content you're actually teaching, the, the whole communication, the, the thinking process is already changing. No, no matter what you're teaching, like we use these chairs and the whole set of tools in different projects. We did uh, social studies and science and math, and regardless of what content they were learning, you could see a communication process changing already. And then we use different language, different you know practices for mm -hmm. just coming through, mm -hmm. and that's that's also. You know, uh, when we started doing uh, this uh, offer to the market, we were we are convinced that uh, space can encourage uh, behavior. So what learning behaviors do you want to promote using the space? And what you're telling me uh, really, I mean, the, uh, validates uh, this, uh, this uh, quote, this thinking, so. Yeah, yeah we'd, we'd be very interested in your research as well, like as you all work in schools, what are the other you know, findings that you come up with? Um, we're both in the tech education department, so a lot of this kind of project-based thinking layers on top of that, um, that kind of go together. And these are more like, I think, progressive educational movements are already kind of out there. Um, but, you know, looking at the IDEO and this design thinking process, it has been going through these same thought processes for a long time. Yes. Uh, that's the exciting part for us. I looked at some of your other classroom models where you have, I forget what they're called, but there's the movable tables, but they go in front of the mediascapes. You, you get this idea of the four projection areas, um, and then any group can become the leader of the classroom. Like, those are very dynamic you know, ways, of, ways of teaching as well. Good news is that uh, we are thinking seriously in the design and develop solutions for K-12. So it's, well, it's not going to be soon. I can when you guys are ready you, yeah. to like have your South American research center, we we'll <laughs> use right. our space right here. <laughs> <laughs> and spread to <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to turn the recording off here because I know that we have flights to catch. Um, and once again, thank you very much for thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
that's the end of our first episode of Journeys in Podcasting, threading the teaching community within and beyond. We invite you to our, our next podcast, which will be featuring student-created tutorials across different subject matter. And we'll also be taking this podcast uh, to a couple of conferences, one in uh, Asa Kurosawa, 2015, and another one at Innovate in Sao Paulo at Graded. Graded School in March 2015. So that's it for this episode of our podcast. We would love to hear your comments, and if you would like to be a contributor of content or feedback on one of the live sessions, you can email me at cdavis at cng.edu. I'm also found on Twitter at chrisdaviscng, C-H-R-I-S-D-A-V-I-S-C-N-G. And I'll also love to hear back from you guys. You can reach me at, on Twitter as techie underscore boy, and you can always email me at dilopez, L-O-P-E-Z, at cng.edu. All right, we'll see you next time.